Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. When I started this podcast, I, I did so with a desire to create a space um, in my intellectual life for longer, thoughtful conversations about a topic that dominates much of my professional life, which is the way that technologies are pretty fundamentally transforming our economy, our societies, our politics, and our, our personal lives. I engage a lot in this debate, and I have, have for many years working um, both to understand these technologies and the effect they're having on us, and what we as societies can do to minimize some of the harms and risks that are stemming from these technologies. But I found that this debate was increasingly reduced to very reductive arguments about the goods and ills of technologies, critics pointing out all the harms, platforms, defending them. Um, and this was all happening in a form that wasn't very conducive to more thoughtful deliberation. And I missed some of that intellectual activity and that engagement that used to come from the space of blogging, where people deeply invested in a topic wrestled with an issue in public. And I think that in many ways, podcasting and podcast conversations have, have stepped into this void with this need for longer conversations. And, and I think that that has proven correct with this show. And the result is that personally, the podcast, this show, has become one of the most generative intellectual things I do. For each episode, I get to research a topic that I care about, think about how I personally view that and understand that topic and what I don't understand about it, and then speak to a world expert on it. Sometimes this is someone who has written a book on it, sometimes it's a colleague or a friend who I have a lot of respect for, or sometimes it's someone I've, I've admired from a distance for a long time. Many times it's all of those three at once. But these conversations also really force me to wrestle with and think through these really challenging topics. Um, none of these issues we talk about, about all the different ways digital technologies affect our lives are easy. And I spend a lot of time working and thinking about these topics, and yet coming out of these conversations Every time I find I've learned just a tremendous amount. And so I want to spend this last episode of the season reflecting a bit on some of the, the broader themes and observations I've made and things I've learned um, from the arc of these conversations as a whole. So here are six things um, that I've pulled from these 19 conversations with an incredibly rich, um, smart group of people that I've been lucky enough to speak with. The first observation I want to draw from these series of conversations is that the debate about technology and society and all its complexity and richness is maturing. I spent a lot of my time in my academic and professional life um, researching the ways in which technologies are affecting our society and the potential harms and all of the benefits that come from them. Um, and increasingly working on the potential governance strategy for maximizing these benefits and minimizing these harms. This has involved spending years initially raising awareness of these harms I and other researchers were seeing, um, 
to highlighting them to the public and to policymakers and to urging governments to pay attention to these harms, to not just look at the upside of these technologies, but also to look at the risks and to do something about them, to step into this space and to govern in a way they hadn't before. Governments had largely left this space ungoverned. And now governments are. They're increasingly paying attention. They're concerned about the harms. Society as a whole is increasingly concerned about what they're seeing as some of the risks and harms embedded in these technologies. And so we're now embroiled in a set of really tough debates about how we're going to govern this space. And they're tough because there's no silver bullets. There's no clear answers. There's no one thing that will solve this whole host of economic, political, social, human, community harms that have unfortunately stemmed from the way in which we use some of these technologies. And these are particularly difficult because there are some core trade-offs, some core democratic trade-offs and tensions between rights embedded in these policy discussions. For example, as Jamil Jaffer pointed out in our conversation about free speech, free speech is always, in democratic societies, a tension between competing rights. The right for individuals to speak freely and openly in democratic societies, and the right for individuals in those same societies to not be harmed by speech. It is not as easy as simply saying there is bad speech on platforms and therefore we should get rid of it. And so when we are making decisions about governing online speech, we are trading off those rights. And we have to decide as a society where we're going to land. I mean, one of the reasons that why it's complicated is that we can't agree on what speech should be taken down. Like beyond the stuff that is illegal, um, then there isn't a consensus on, you know, where the line should be. And, but even if there were a consensus, you'd still have to worry about the chilling effect of these kinds of uh, laws. Encryption and anonymity is another such tension. Anonymity online affords individuals and groups tremendous rights and empowers them in really meaningful ways. It gives voice to people who would otherwise be persecuted in society. It allows individuals and people to express themselves in ways they might not if they were publicly disclosed. It allows journalism and whistleblowers to function, to hold our societies accountable. And yet... Tremendous harm is also done under the cover of anonymity. We know that violence is organized and perpetrated, that black markets function, and then a host of activity that challenges democratic norms and democratic societies enabled by anonymity. So what do we do about that? Those who come forward and say, I've got a simple answer for this, yeah. are really, um, I think, leading a lot. Um, because it's, it's, there's, there is no simple answer. It's a complicated issue. And there are real challenges uh, for law enforcement and intelligence agencies to do the work that they do. Um, my view is that, um, you know, first of all, the, the debate is often incorrectly portrayed as between security versus privacy, when in fact it's about two different versions of security. And, and we cannot sacrifice one for the other. And I think what I've drawn from these conversations so far this year is that the very challenge of these conversations is a sign not of the weakness of this debate. Many people want to use the argument that there's no silver bullet 
to argue that nothing should be done. Because no one thing fixes everything, we shouldn't do anything. And this is a very deliberate strategy to obfuscate the governance possibilities in this space. But to me, the sign that we're wrestling with these in public, the publics are debating it, the governments are debating them, is a sign that debate is maturing, not that it's stagnating. We're wrestling with the difficult policy decisions and tensions and trade-offs that are core to actually getting this governance agenda right. The second observation I would make is that these issues and debates aren't just global in that the internet has globalized our communications and have users around the world, but that there are layers of interconnectedness between the debates we're having about these technologies in different countries around the world and different types of governance regimes around the world and in the ways in which technologies are used in different ways in different societies. The global nature of these platforms is bumping up against the way we govern via national law. Pranav Dixit, an Indian journalist, spoke really powerfully about the global reach of Silicon Valley and how it had, uh, had shaped his own life and his own engagement with his society but also highlighted the real challenges that are facing citizens in what are increasingly illiberal-leaning regimes like India, where the Indian government is using very similar language to what Western democratic governments are using to crack down on speech and political dissent in Indian society. So countries, of course, have a right to govern themselves and I certainly want my country to have that right. But what happens when that language of governance is appropriated for a liberal ends? How should we understand the global nature of those regulations when the same kinds of policies can be used for radically different ends depending on the country that is imposing them? And is it the case that in some countries around the world, the values of some of these platforms, which I may or may not agree with, are actually far more democratic and liberal than the values being imposed by certain states. I mean, would you would you essentially rather Facebook be determining the speech of Indian citizens or the Indian government? No, I definitely don't want Facebook deciding the speech of Indian citizens. But we're in a we're in a time when you also don't want the government to be this in in charge of all that, right? Should we in democratic societies limit our governance of these platforms so that the base rights they provide empower the rights of individuals in less democratic societies around the world? Is that how we should be thinking about the global nature of these platforms? Or do we as individuals in democratic societies have the right and obligation to demonstrate how this space can be governed responsibly? A third thing that became increasingly clear to me over the course of these conversations is that we need to think about technology not just as an ephemeral set of tools, but instead as something that is deeply material. Technology is built by people and is built of things. And increasingly, both of those material elements of the technologies we use, of the platforms we engage on, 
are costing the planet. Few people understand and communicate the materiality of technology better than Kate Crawford, who I had the chance to talk to about her new book, The Atlas of AI. We like to think about things like AI as if they're automated and there's no human involvement, and it leads to this enchantment we have with these technologies, that somehow they are separate or better than humans. But in fact, she points out they are built by humans. Huge amounts of human labor goes into these technologies. So across across the entire kind of ecosystem of AI, there, there are people in the background who are effectively, you know, making these systems appear intelligent. And this is, you know, part of why I say that AI is, is neither artificial nor intelligent. It's made of all of these forms of, of, of human labour um, that we don't see um, and that we don't pay very well and that in, in many cases are, are doing work that's, that's physically and, and psychologically very taxing. And not only is there human labour going into this, she points out, but there is tremendous energy going into sustaining these systems the energy that goes to power server farms, the enormous amount of energy that goes to operate even a single machine learning algorithm. Every time we ask a question of an AI system, every time we use an automated system to solve a problem for us, every time we communicate or watch something online, we're using a tremendous amount of energy. And even the technologies themselves are material. They use a huge amount of rare earth minerals, which are mined around the world, that are increasingly scarce, that we don't know how long we will have access to, and which bring with them the whole set of challenges that we've long faced in the extractive industry. If Kate tells us one thing, it's that we need to think about technology more holistically. It is not a magical thing that we use and that solves problems for us. It is something that is built, that we as humans built, that we build using resources that affect our climate, that are contributing considerably to the other great crisis of our age, the climate crisis, and that are increasingly drawing on resources that we have limited access to. When we think about governing technology, we cannot just think about the harms that are conducted using them, but we have to think about the harm done building and running them. I mean, we're calling this, you know, the era of AI supercomputers. So we're actually making things that are more and more energy and compute intensive at the same time as the planet is under, you know, extraordinary strain. So in so many ways, I think the data economy is premised on maintaining this kind of environmental ignorance. Fourth, when we we think about digital technologies, we often focus just on one layer of them, on the layer that we interact with, our Facebook news feed, our Twitter stream, our Google search bar, our phone. But what we often leave out of this conversation is that that final layer of technology, the layer that we as individuals and citizens interact with, sits on top of a much broader technology infrastructure on the cables and satellites that move our data around the world, on the servers where this information is stored. And it turns out when we look at this broader infrastructure, we see that it is highly vulnerable, that we've built this precarious system that is increasingly the source of deep security vulnerabilities. Few people in the world know this better than Ron Debert, who has spent the past 20 years researching these vulnerabilities 
And what his work points out so clearly and the conversation with him revealed is that this infrastructure we have built and that we have failed to govern and secure properly is leaving us highly vulnerable. So if you step back for a minute and you look at, you know, putting aside social media, just the entire technological infrastructure, security's largely been an afterthought, first of all. You know, you have these legacy systems that were invented in some cases decades ago when you look at telecommunications technologies and the protocols that underlie it all um, that have kind of, you know, been cobbled together is the way that I think about it. And on the surface, it, it kind of works well, works functions actually remarkably well if you look at what we're doing right now. But yeah. there are all these um, negative externalities and gaping vulnerabilities. So when you insert malicious actors into the equation, they can exploit them. There's also a layer of actors and programmers who are seeking to exploit the vulnerabilities in the code of our infrastructure. Nicole Perlroth, the cybersecurity reporter for the New York Times, spoke of, of this market for zero days, which are exploits that hackers around the world find and then sell to democratic countries, to companies, to illiberal regimes, leading to a bidding war for these vulnerabilities. And one of the things she points out that's so powerful is that by participating in this market for these vulnerabilities, our governments, democratic governments, are creating a substantial vulnerability for themselves and for their citizens. Because these exploits are not just used by them to find terrorists or to hunt criminals. Once they're in the wild, they make everyone vulnerable. As we're increasingly seeing with a black market for ransomware. And so where is ransomware going? Because we're just digitizing our lives. At what point is it going to be your self-driving car or your insulin pump or your pacemaker? You know, there's no reason to go there yet because there's still so much money to be made with these corporate ransomware attacks. But we're just continuing to connect everything without thinking about that possibility. And that's a very real possibility. That's not just stoking fear for fear's sake. That's a possibility. Fifth, and this is something that I've been concerned about for longer than we've been doing these podcast conversations, but something that has really been reinforced to me, is that much of the debate about how to govern these technologies focuses on the wrong thing. It focuses on the way they're used by individuals and less on the structure that enabled that activity. And that is first and foremost what we need to understand about these technologies, that they are built, they are built by people, these people have incentives. These people have biases, these people have subjectivities, and the way in which these systems are built, the financial incentives that are embedded in them, the way data is treated in them, the way they're moderated or not, all of these things shape the outcome, the social and political outcome that these technologies have. I've got the chance to speak to some people who know a tremendous amount about these root causes. Mutali Nakonde, one of the most thoughtful people in the world on the role of race and technology, speaks about the fundamental design decisions in these technologies with lead to discrimination, to abuse that is disproportionately felt by people of color online, that allowed adversaries and nefarious actors like the Russian government to exploit divisions in our society around issues of race in highly effective ways. 
So the way that social media algorithms work in terms of race is if you engage with content, so that's click, share, or comment, right? Those are three types of engagement. Um, you're going to be served up that content again because the algorithm is a, is a pattern matching mechanism. And what it does is to look to match you with similar content. And what the Mueller report found in 2016 was people that were clicking on content that was uh, promoting Black Lives Matter messaging were then also being fed content that was encouraging them not to vote. And Joan Donovan, one of the world experts on mis- and disinformation, eloquently stepped back from this structural argument to make what I think is a critical point, that these structural incentives are what determine the regulations that platforms are willing to accept, that they're now saying they want, and the ones they do not. And that we as societies cannot be blinded by the policies that these companies say they want and need to focus clearly on ones that address these structural problems. Some platforms are advocating very loudly for policies at the moment to regulate them. They want clarity over what illegal speech is so that they can train their AIs to be more efficient, for example. But they do not want competition policy that might break them up or limit their market dominance. They do not want real privacy laws. They do not want governments or regulators to have the power to regulate their algorithms to bring transparency to the way their systems work. And the fact of the matter is, is that when these companies say uh, we, we welcome regulation, they mean of a certain kind and type and one that specifically doesn't require them to either break up their businesses or uh, create limits for the kinds of profit that they take in or profit sharing uh, downstream. Another way of saying this is they do not want structural solutions. They don't want to address the root causes because the root causes are a function of their business models and reversing them will reduce their profits, will reduce their value, and ultimately reduce the core responsibility they have, which is to their shareholders. And we know that publicly traded monopolies do not self-regulate. And so they have very little incentive to address these core structural issues. But these structural issues are critical for democratically governing the digital public sphere. Which brings me to my final observation, which is how many people I got to speak to stressed that the free market will not solve this problem. When a market fails to self-regulate and when this failure leads to social and economic harms, that is precisely when we expect governments to act and to step in. But many of the guests this season pushed me to go further on this, to think further and more broadly about what this means. Victor Picard argued that the failure of journalism is not just a market problem that can be fixed by better competition policy. Interestingly, as another guest this season, Rod Sims argued for in Australia, Victor argues we can't just fix the market problem and hope that journalism will be saved because journalism is a systemic market failure. There is no business model for journalism, he argues, that can sustain its democratic responsibility. You know, for purist neoclassical economists, they can just say, well, we just need to, you know, do a few little tiny, uh, you know, nips and tucks here. It'll be fine. 
And I do, I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I think clearly we're seeing something that is irredeemable, especially for providing local journalism. We need, we don't need to shore up these commercial models. We need to create some kind of public alternative here. Otherwise, we know what's going to happen. We're going to keep watching the market drive journalism into the ground, really making the case for these radical arguments that this is what happens if you just leave it up to the market. Ethan Zuckerman argues for a civic model of the internet, that we need to think about the internet not as a purely capitalist free market enterprise that provides goods and services for users, but something that provides civic goods, that provides public goods to citizens. And if we do that, we need to consider, he argues, public options to some of these tools. That's the spirit of, of digital public infrastructure. The spirit of digital public infrastructure is first and foremost the internet is too important to leave up to the private market. Um, that the private market is obviously going to have a, a place in it, but you can't assume that the market meets all of your needs. Um, this whole argument about media is that argument, right? So maybe that's the case for social media. Maybe that's the case for search. Search strikes me as an incredibly powerful and potentially dangerous thing to leave purely up to the market. Maybe that's a place um, where we need sort of a public alternative. And Naomi Klein goes even a step further. She argues that some of these services, these digital services, have become so entrenched in our lives, so critical to our lives, that there's an argument for nationalizing them. Increasingly, during the pandemic, we've seen tech companies um, like you use the pandemic as a backdoor to privatize um, kind of untouchable public goods like education. Um, I sort of feel like we have two options. We either throw up our hands and say there is no commons, right? We have, we've allowed it all to be enclosed. We've allowed it all to be privatized. Or we start talking about some pretty radical ideas about nationalizing some of this infrastructure. And I think I'll end on, on a note about that conversation with Naomi Klein. Um, we ended our conversation about the climate crisis, about the existential threats of big tech in a slightly different spot. And that was a conversation about how both of our kids who are very similar ages use technology in some really wonderful ways. My son has very specific YouTube obsessions. Um, yeah, mine too. Origami yeah. is my kids. Origami? One. Origami and magic tricks, card tricks. He goes, he's yeah. deep in the rabbit hole of, of uh, both subcultures of YouTube. So my kid is obsessed with electric guitar um, tutorials, not playing it, but 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 upgrading electric guitar, <laughs> like pickups and yeah. and things like that. Where you like, um, he has this one guy who he's just completely obsessed with, and he starts like vibrating when he knows that he's going to be dropping a new video. It's like <laughs> if Daryl takes a week off. It's oh my just God. a huge incident. I have the same house. thing with this <laughs> random guy who does origami tutorials in the Midwest. And this guy is, he does not know the influence he has in our household. <laughs> but I must say, I think it's kind of amazing. Like, yeah. we just watched crappy superhero cartoons. Um, and this has made him want to actually do incredible things. Like, my, my eight year old son now knows how to solder, thanks to Daryl. <laughs> so <laughs> I think. Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm think, I might think it's great. <laughs> um, Both of them get something very meaningful out of the people they follow and watch on YouTube. And we both recognize that this is something really powerful 
and wonderful that we nest can't necessarily provide to our kids alone, which makes getting this right all the more important. If we want to, if we recognize the power of these technologies and the tremendous positive impact they're having on our kids, on our lives, on our societies, on our democracies, and we want to ensure that those good things remain, then we need to figure out how to govern them in ways that mitigate the harms. It cannot be a trade-off that we have to accept, that we, we do not have to accept all of these potential risks and harms just so we as societies can get the benefits these technologies afford. We can have both. And I think many of the people I've spoken to this year provide pathways for how we can have both, for how we can govern the internet, govern our digital technologies in a way that maximizes their benefits and minimizes their harms. So I look forward to continuing these conversations next season. We have a lot planned for next year. I'm excited to talk about that, and we'll be back in the fall to continue these conversations. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week. Thank you.